hands raised, can you sing that one more time? as we approach this Thanksgiving week and we just say unto him you are good we acknowledge that we recognize that we praise you for that Can you put your hands together and give him some praise? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, mighty God, for your goodness, for your mercy, Lord. Hallelujah. For your everlasting kindness, Jesus. Thank you, God. God bless you. You may be seated. Bless you for being here. Just prior to uh, undoubtedly overindulging yourself this week and um, shamefully coming back to church on Sunday and asking God to forgive you for eating too much over the next several days. But, um, well, that's what we'll be here for Sunday. We'll be here waiting on you. Altars will be open. You can ask God to forgive you for eating way too much food. But enjoy your time. Amen reflecting on uh, the goodness of the Lord. This is my favorite time of the year. I know Christmas is, you know, a lot of people like Christmas. Christmas is okay, but for me, Thanksgiving, that's where it's at. And uh, so I love this time of year because I believe gratitude is at the heart of our relationship with God. It's literally at the heart of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, My grandfather, um, I was thinking about him as I opened up his Bible here, he was probably the most content person I have ever been around. Uh, you, if you bought him anything, he probably already had something that was 100 years old that he was, he was okay to have. He didn't, even, he didn't need whatever you bought him new. Um, I was telling just someone the other day this. He was so content. I bought him a new lawnmower one time, and I knew that my grandfather, uh, he... he uh, he was independent, and not. He was very prideful, not in a in a negative way. But he he didn't. He come from a generation they didn't take handouts, and so if you bought him something, you know you you better be very diplomatic and 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 wise about it. So I bought him a new lawnmower, but I didn't tell him I bought him a new lawnmower. I just went over to his house one day, and I don't think I've ever even told my grandmother this story. I went over to his house and I unloaded this new lawnmower for him, and it was a nice one, three sixty lawnmower. Unloaded it. And I started mowing the yard. Well, he came on out of the house, and I pulled over there, and I parked it, and I cut the lawnmower off. I said, Grandpa, what do you think about this lawnmower? He said, oh, it's all right. I said, all right. I said, man, look at this thing. It's 48-inch cut. You can make a t- turn on a dime. It cuts so great. Oh, I got a, I got a gravelly. It's, it's just as good. Well, this gravelly lawnmower, it came over literally on the Mayflower. I mean, it... It is. <laughs> when I say it's 100 years old, I mean it may be 100 years old. And he's had it since, Lord, I don't know when. And so I said, well, you sure you would, wouldn't rather have something like this? And, oh, no, I wouldn't even have that. So I was, my feelings were hurt a little bit, so I kept on mowing. And, and shortly he got his little gravelly lawnmower out and started mowing. 
And when we got done, he said, see how much better mine cuts. I never even told him. I loaded that lawnmower up and took it back to the house. <laughs> he was content with whatever he had. It wasn't about the latest and greatest and the newest and the best. And, and for him, whatever God had blessed him with, that was good. That was the best. It was, wasn't even good enough. It was, in his mind, the best. And uh, so I strive to be more like that so that I can appreciate the goodness of God in my life because the world tries to uh, fit us into a mold of constantly needing something else to bring contentment in our life. I say this, uh, I don't know, every year it feels like, but if, you, if you've ever lived in a subdivision, you, re- you can see this play out. One neighbor will get a pool, for instance, and then the next thing you know, every neighbor in the whole neighborhood has to have a pool. They're trying to keep up with each other. It's like, a, I, you know, and, and that is in our culture. It's, it's in our makeup. We feel like we've got to have the newest. And there's nothing wrong with new things, obviously. But if we're not careful, we can lose that rest and peace that contentment brings. That what I have, God bless me with, and I'm happy with it. And if I don't get anything else, I'm okay because God has been good to me. And there's such a rest and there's such a contentment in that. And I'm thankful for the goodness of the Lord. Um, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Tonight we will continue our series on uh, Jesus' response to faith. Uh, Pastor Martinez was asking me if I was going to teach on thankfulness tonight. And I said, no, I'm saving that for Sunday. I know it's after Thanksgiving, but... I. I wait all year to preach on thankfulness, and so I'm saving that one for Sunday. John chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew... Ask a drink of me, which is a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Racism has been around a long time. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, then thou would have asked of him that he would give thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. The well is deep from whence thou hast this living water. Where are you going to get it from? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered in verse 13 and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever, verse 14, drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, someone say in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. You ever had a trick question? 
You ever had somebody ask you a question that they knew the answer to, but they wanted to see if you were honest? You ever asked your kids, hey, who made this mess in the, in the kitchen? You knew who made the mess in the kitchen, but you were going to see if they were going to tell you. You know what Jesus did in verse 16? He asked a question he already knew the answer to. If Jesus asks you a question, it's not because he don't know. <laughs> verse 16, he said, go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. <laughs> Jesus said, thou hast well said, meaning you're honest, when you said, I have no husband. Why? Because verse 18, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. The woman said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is in this place where men ought to worship. We would continue to read, well, for the sake of time, not. But this woman, after having an encounter with Jesus, would go on to tell the entire city and would influence and impact the, an entire city over one interaction and one conversation with Jesus. Tonight, we'll talk about living water. Someone say living water. In 1887, a company drilling for oil along the banks of the Mississippi River near LaGrange, Missouri, made an unexpected discovery. Uh, there's a picture, gentlemen, I don't know if we have it or not, but uh, at 400 feet below the surface of the earth, they struck water. At 800 feet, the flow of water became much stronger. Finally, at 850 feet, for the Gibbons, you can appreciate this, at 850 feet below the surface of the earth, the water pressure was so strong that the drilling team could not proceed any further. In 19, at 1907, a government-sponsored survey registered the flow of this underwater river at 60 gallons per minute and noted that no perceptible change ever had been noticed in either its volume or its force, ever. The drillers were disappointed by this development because they were hoping to secure a fuel source for the local steel mill. Water certainly would not serve that purpose. But when the water was analyzed, a geologist found that it contained potassium, calcium, magnesium, alumina, and sodium. The liquid coming from the ground was mineral water. It was prized in the late 19th century for its medicinal benefits. Much like uh, Verena on the Fuquay Verena side, it was built around a well that people would come from miles and miles around to get down into this water because it was mineral water. It was high in, in nutrients or high in uh, these various uh, magnesium, sodium, various things like this well. And so a local businessman named C.N. Thompson soon capitalized on this find. He began bottling the water up from the LaGrange Artesian well and selling it all over the United States. A local historian notes that Thomas marketed the mineral water as a cure for everything from diabetes to stomach disorders. 
Despite the grossly exaggerated nature of these claims, sales were brisk. The local water department bottled 50 to 90,000 gallons per day for shipment to Chicago. Today, after more than 135 years of the well from the well's initial discovery, this water in this well continues to flow. Even occasional floods from the nearby Mississippi River have been unable to destroy this well. Other mineral wells in the area have long since dried up, but local residents can still enjoy a drink from the Lagrange Artesian Well, a well that never runs dry, a well that supposedly brings life and a healing to all who drink. That sounds something like John described in Revelations 21 and 6, where Jesus promised to give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The good news is that the water Jesus offered is available to everyone regardless of where you live. Thank God for that. We read, Tonight, in our opening passage of Scripture in John 3, where Jesus, and we talked about this several weeks ago, actually, in John 3, that Jesus had a nighttime meeting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. I mean, remember us teaching about Nicodemus and being born again of the water and spirit. And he met Nicodemus at night. And if anyone should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, it should have been Nicodemus. And yet, their conversation concluded, and we don't see any indication that Nicodemus really acknowledged the identity of Jesus. He should have known who he was, but we cannot find anything in this conversation to indicate that he really discovered who Jesus was. It reminds us of what John wrote in the opening chapter of his gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. There are many people that encounter Jesus. There are many people who encounter this life-giving water, but they do not recognize it for what it is. Now, you take that incident where Nicodemus did not recognize Jesus, and you compare it to what we read tonight, the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, and you see a much different picture. In John chapter 4, in the context of this, the Jews despised the Samaritans. And they despised them because of their mixed racial and religious heritage. Samaritans were cultural and religious outsiders. Because of the Samaritans, uh, the Samaritan woman's very questionable past, she undoubtedly not only was... Uh, in and as an outsider because of her background, but because of what she had done in her past, she was at the bottom of the social ladder. So we can assume and know that she was the lowest of low when it comes to the people in her community. <clears throat> we can assume that someone of her stature and her status probably in her mind had bigger fish to fry than spiritual matters. And yet the outcome of this meeting reflected the words of John 1 and 12 when it says, But as many as received him, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is a great illustration of regardless if you're the mayor of the town, the governor, or the president, or you are the, the lowest of the low on the social spectrum, I can tell you that Jesus has living water for you. He is the answer for the rich. He's answer for the poor. He's answer for those that live in gated communities. And he's the answer for those who live in cardboard boxes under the bridge. This woman received the words of Jesus in her life. And her community was forever changed. As Jesus observed in Matthew 20 and 16, the last shall be first and the first last. <laughs> the ones who seem more suited for faith sometimes fail to believe. We make the mistake sometimes of looking at somebody and thinking, oh man, they're, they're too far gone. They got too many problems. They got addictions. They got hang-ups. They got issues. I, I just don't see how that's possible. And we look at someone over here. They're all cleaned up. They got a good job. They live in a nice house. They got a nice family. You're like, oh, boy, they, they could serve God. And we are often surprised by the fact that the ones we think will won't and the ones we think won't will. And so we have to understand that sometimes it is... Not all as it seems. And this woman, as we see here, understood and knew that just because she was the lowest of the low and, and there were people that would look down on her, she, if she was hungry for that living water, God would grant it, would grant it. And so Jesus, in this meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, he opened up with one of the most mundane requests when he said, can I have a drink of water? Now, he was traveling from Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. It was about a three-day journey. And because of their intense hatred for the Samaritans, most of the Jews refused to even travel through the region. Imagine being so racist that you wouldn't even go through a town because of the people in it. And that's where they were. They wouldn't even travel through this town because of the people that lived in it. But Jesus did not adult, adopt the prejudice of his culture. He didn't hesitate to travel straight through the heart of Samaria. I believe in a lot of ways he was trying to prove a point that there is no respecter of persons. Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman happened. We find out about the sixth hour of the day. So this would have been around noon. It would have been the hottest part of the day. The sun was at its peak. And this woman who had been living kind of in the shadows her whole life. and Her life was about to be flooded with the light of God's truth. We talked about last week how that Jesus met with, or, or the week prior, Jesus met Nicodemus at night, and he was in spiritual darkness. Here, Jesus met this woman in the day, and yet she also was in spiritual darkness as well. And so this woman, when Jesus asked her, can I have a drink of water, she was kind of taken back because she couldn't comprehend someone who didn't see the world through the lens of religious and cultural bias. Who was this person that would ask her of a drink? 
He shouldn't even be speaking to me. I can't believe he's even looking at me. I can't believe he's even having a conversation with me. I'm the lowest of the low. And here he was engaging in a conversation. And so it's easy to imagine her kind of blurting out. We read it in the Scripture. How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, which is a woman of Samaria? I can't believe you're even talking to me. I can't believe we're even having this conversation because I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, she would say. It was shocking enough that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan, but the fact that she was a woman made Jesus' request doubly surprising. So you're talking to a Samaritan. That's different. And I'm a woman as well. And that is even even odder because in those days, um, women did not necessarily get the same preference that men did. And so Jesus, he overcome cultural bias. Uh, he overcome all the guidelines and all of the things that that society and that culture had unfairly placed on those in the area. And he said, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you came from. You and I are about to have a conversation. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't qualify people when they approach him. I'm glad we don't hand out applications in the foyer and find out if people are worthy enough to approach Calvary. I'm so thankful that when I approach God, I don't have to worry about not having enough money or mistakes that I've made in the past or my background or my family or things that are in my past I'm not proud of. But I can be anybody from anywhere and have nothing, and I can approach Him. I can approach Him. I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that in this this week of thankfulness. We ought to be so thankful that no matter where we're at, I have, I have approached him in a hurry as I was going through an intersection and about to have an accident. How many have ever said, Jesus? Hmm. How many in the middle of the night with your baby sick, raging fever, not knowing what to do, place your hand on that baby's head in the name of Jesus? I'm so thankful that no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what is happening, I am thankful that I can approach Him and I can have a conversation with Him. I can talk to Him. He made that clear in this conversation. People are still confounded by those who refuse to reflect the biases of the wider world. Do you know that onlookers... The media and those around were so blown away by the racial and ethnic diversity of Azusa Street. That was really, to be honest with you, the big headline maker to start with. Azusa Street was where Pentecost kind of hit the map in the United States. In his book, How Pentecost Came to Los Angeles, Frank Bartleman, a chronicler of those early years, famously noted this. He said, quote, the color line was washed away in the blood. Here was an incident where most churches, and sadly, it's still the case, but it especially was the case in the early 1900s that the most segregated day of the week was Sunday. You had white churches, black churches, and churches of all different nationalities. And yet here in Azusa Street was this incredible diversity 
and unity where people from all walks of life, all ethnic backgrounds were together having church, receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Hundreds and hundreds of people were flooding into this little space and it was getting the attention of everybody. Many of Bartleman's contemporaries could not comprehend Christians who were drawn together by a thirst for living water and not divided by social prejudices. I believe that nothing speaks to our community like being able to come into a church and seeing people worship together from all walks of life. Loving one another, caring for one another. Pastor Barber preached about it on Sunday. The Bible says, They shall know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It is the distinguishing characteristic. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your skin color is, what your cultural background is. You're welcome here. Living water flows here. The blood of Jesus is available here. His presence can be felt here. And when we come together, we speak to a world that's racist and prejudiced and hate-filled and divisive. When they come in here, they see a sanctuary from that. They see, or they should see something different. God forbid if that ever seeps into your spirit. God forbid if that ever finds its, finds its way into your conversation. And we have to fight it. There's no doubt about it. There's not a single one of us that's being honest that has not at moments felt that and battled that. It is our nature to just want to hover and group around people that are like us. They come from where we come from. They speak the same language. They look like us. And so we just kind of naturally congregate around them. We have to fight that. We have to battle that. We have to come against that because we speak to our community and in our world when we come together like a tapestry of many different fibers and colors and we weave a beautiful picture of unity and love and diversity that speaks to our world. World. speaks to our world you don't find that in a lot of places you don't find it and we have to work hard to maintain that we have to maintain that you feel something in your spirit rising up against someone that's different than you rebuke that in the name of jesus and get it right with god right come against that spirit come against that spirit and so living water is available to whosoever will more than a century has passed since the Azusa Street outpouring. But we know it. Divisions and prejudice still persist within the North American culture. Consequently, it's more important than ever for the church to demonstrate the love of Christ in every context and celebrate the value of each person. Of each person. Doesn't matter where they're from. No matter what they look like, it don't matter. In a world trapped in a perpetual cycle of fear and hate, we must preach the message of a Savior who, as Second Peter said, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should come to repentance. Through His church, Jesus Christ is still. 2023, he's still traveling into the Samarias of our world. Still traveling. And you as a Christian, 
as an ambassador of Christ, there should be no Samaria in your life. Come on, somebody. Even the so-called Christians, even the so-called good Jews would not go into Samaria because they were so racist, so prejudiced. You shouldn't have a Samaria in your life. Well, how would I know if I've got a Samaria? When you treat somebody differently because of the way they look, where they come from, their background, if you treat them differently, then the way you would treat someone that looks like you, you got a Samaria in your life. And so you need to kind of pull out the map of your life and look down there and analyze, do I have a Samaria? Do I really treat everyone the same, or do I find myself giving preferential treatment to those that have the same skin color that I have? Or that like the same things that I like, that come from the same way that I, or the same background that I come from. And if the difference is obvious or it's even noticeable to you, then you've got a Samaria in your life and you need to rebuke that because there shouldn't be a Samaria. It's important that there is no area of Samaria in our world. He's still traveling into those areas to reach people, those who have been overlooked. Those that have been ostracized, he has adopted us into a multi-ethnic, multi-racial movement held together by the power of his spirit, his spirit. Paul told believers in the city of Corinth, Pastor Barbara read it, for by one spirit, someone say one spirit, are we all baptized into one body, someone say one body. Whether we be Jews, Gentiles, bond, or free, and have been all made to drink unto one spirit. Someone say one spirit. That doesn't sound like there's any space for Samaria. Jesus responded to the Samaritan's woman's request with a promise that still stands. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And Jesus was like, Woman, do you know who I am? Like, I don't mean to name drop here, but that water in that well, that'll last about 15 minutes. What I'm talking about is a living water that will satisfy you the rest of your life. And if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be giving me water. You'd be asking me of that living water. Living water is a metaphor for salvation through the power of the Spirit. And it is available to all who sincerely ask. We cannot earn it. It is the gift of God. This woman didn't understand the promise of Jesus and this living water promise because she didn't know who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink. Pharaoh even said this at one point, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Why is it important that you understand God, the Godhead, the oneness of God? Why is it important? Because you can't obey somebody you don't know who they are. And so she didn't know who He was, and so she didn't understand living water. And from whence then hast thou this living water? She no doubt consents there was something different about this man. She was probably picking up on the fact that this wasn't an ordinary guy out of the town. There was something different about him. He didn't appear to possess the physical resources needed to draw water from Jacob's well. He don't have a bucket. He has no way to get it. But something 
was probably telling her, I don't think this guy's going to need it. (laughs) I don't think he's like everyone else. Something in the demeanor of Jesus made her sense that he had something she needed. Jesus assured her, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give unto him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I want to pause here just a moment to remind you that when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it is a well, it's not a drink. Meaning, you can go at any time you want to. Get down on your knees in your prayer closet or at church. Begin to talk to God, and that well will produce water again. It's not a one-time experience. It's not like I went to church, and I felt good, and I spoke in tongues, and I'm going to reflect back on that for the next 20 years. That's a drink. That's not a well. A well is something that you can go back to when you get thirsty, when you get depressed, when you get discouraged, when you get sick, when you get lonely. You can go back to that well. Drink from it again. At this point of the conversation, we find an awkward moment. In the sales world, they teach you, and when you make a sales pitch or you're trying to sell something to someone, uh, they say every great salesperson knows how to bring tension to the conversation. It has to be more than just How's your family and what's the weather like? At some point, if you're wanting to close the deal, there's got to be a touch of awkwardness. There's got to be some tension there. There's got to be a decision made. There's got to be a commitment. And the person selling has to be okay with that awkwardness. You have to ask for the sale and then just grin until they say yes. I'm okay with awkward. (laughs) And so in this point of the conversation, it got a little awkward. Because Jesus said, hey, why don't you go get your husband and come on back and we'll talk about this. And then he just went. Because there was a little problem. Imagine this woman's face when he stated that. I can see her face flushed with red when she said, I have no husband. Maybe he'll forget it. Maybe he'll move on. Then Jesus let her know that he was, in, he was fully aware of her situation. In fact, he said, no, you don't have a husband because you had five prior to that and you're shacked up with one right now that's not your husband. Want to talk about awkward? Want to talk about tension? <laughs> that was where it was at. Jesus wasn't trying to shame this woman. It was just the two of them here. He wasn't broadcasting this to the whole city. He wasn't shaming her for her sinful lifestyle. Rather, he knew that if this woman truly wanted an experience, a well of water springing up into everlasting life, she would first have to repent of her past efforts to satisfy spiritual thirst. Because you can't drink out of polluted wells. And someone who tries to drink living water without first repenting is drinking out of a polluted well. And that's why a lot of people, and this is a revelation, I'm telling you this is a revelation. 
I don't know why some people they'll come down and they'll pray, and man, it seems like boy, they really they you know they're praying and but then they don't ever really get the Holy Ghost, or they don't ever really get changed, or they go back and their lifestyle doesn't change, and it just seems like they I want to tell you, in large part, they've never truly repented. They're not sorry for what they're doing. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry for the consequences of sin. They're sorry of that pain of that sin is bringing, but they've not had a change of mind. They've not had a, a change of attitude regarding what they're doing. They still want to do those things, but they want to go to heaven too. And so there's no true repentance. So you know what's happening in that scenario? They're drinking from a well that's polluted. And when you're drinking from a polluted well, you're not getting living water. And so Jesus knew, I hate to bring this up, and I hate to make this conversation awkward, but we've got to address the fact that you've had five husbands and you're living with someone right now that's not your husband. Until we can get past that and deal with that, we cannot have living water. And I want to tell you, if you're struggling, whether you're here or online, if you're struggling in your relationship with God, if you can't seem to get a breakthrough when you're praying, you go to the altar and you're not getting a breakthrough. In many instances, there is an unrepented sin in your life. There is an unrepented iniquity in your life that you know about, but you don't want to deal with. You're pushing it off in the corner. You're not addressing it. You're saying, I'll, I'll get better. I'll, I'll slow it down. I won't do it as much that's not repentance repentance is saying i'm turning around i'm going a different direction not only am i not doing that anymore because we know repentance is not just a change of action repentance is a change of mind about that i don't like that anymore i despise it i hate it people that have been delivered from cigarettes they can't stand the smell of them anymore People that have been delivered from alcoholism, they can't stand it anymore. That's real repentance. But when you still find it attractive, you still like it, you still want it, but you're saying, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. That's not repentance. That's a change of action. But repentance is saying, I can't stand it. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want anything to do with it. Until you get there, you're drinking out of a polluted well. There has to be a point in your life when you empty all of those desires out. That's why a lot of people, they'll come repent or, or attempt to repent, or it may seem like they're repenting, but they're not truly hating the sin that led them there. They've got Jesus on the cross with ropes and not nails. It's pretty. It's not painful. It's repentance is painful. It's death. It hurts. You're sorry that you did it, and you don't want to do it anymore. And until you get there, until you have that awkward conversation. And that's why a lot of people don't understand why there's oftentimes a public move to the altar. And I don't want to get hung up on this, but I just feel this in the Holy Ghost. People don't understand why there's a public. Well, I can pray back where I'm at. I can repent where I can repent at home. Yes, you can, but there is something about publicly acknowledging to God and everybody around. I'm sick of this mess. I'm tired of being who I am. I, I don't care who, who, who thinks it, what they think about me, what they say about me. It don't matter who is here. I can tell by the way someone approaches the altar whether they're truly ready to repent. They don't come down worrying about what people are going to say. They come flying down to the altar. I don't care what these people think. You know what? I feel God pulling me. I feel God drawing me. And I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like this anymore. I don't like what it's doing to me. That is a well that is then emptied out and living water can be placed in. And so Jesus knew that had to be addressed. 
The Samaritan woman, no doubt, was taken aback by this shift in conversation. It was like pleasantries, you know, how are you? Can I get a drink of water, yada, yada. Oh, by the way, you've had five husbands and you're living with somebody that's not your husband. What? Well, this just took a turn. And she had been conversing with Jesus for only a brief time, but she already recognized this was no ordinary man. In fact, she stated that when she said in John 4, 19, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You You think? <laughs> you think? Once again, we contrast the Samaritan's woman's response to the words of Jesus with the absence of spiritual awareness that Nicodemus demonstrated. This woman picked up on more about Jesus than Nicodemus ever did. And though he had spiritual pedigree, he was a teacher, he was successful, he was renowned in the community, people looked up to him, but this knucklehead never could figure out how Jesus was. And, she, and this woman... A nobody, lowest of the lowest, like, whoop, wait a minute, this guy, he ain't, he ain't like everybody else. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you came from. You don't have to have spiritual pedigree. You don't have to be learned in the Bible. You don't have to be a theologian. If you're hungry for God, you'll recognize when Jesus is calling you. And she picked up on that. I know who he is. This woman's perception more than compensated for her lack of spiritual pedigree. Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was a, quote, teacher from God. That's like a pat on the back. He's a good man. But he never seemed to progress beyond that level of understanding. The Samaritan woman recognized that Jesus wasn't just another Jewish rabbi, not another teacher, not another good person. Her spiritual insights put him in the company of the prophets, and in those days there was nothing higher. And just as Jesus knew the details of the Samaritan woman's past, it is comical to think that we can hide our past from him or our present. we got to be honest with God when we approach him. We're not fooling anybody. In our prayers, be honest. Right? In our approach, be honest. We can't hide our past. Neither is there any creature, Hebrews 4 and 13 says, that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The purpose of this knowledge is not to bring us shame, but to lead us to repentance. God is not, sac not satisfied with offering his children an occasional sip from the fountains of living water, but yet he invites us to experience something transformative and perpetually fulfilling. But to receive all that God has for us, we must recognize our past sins and our sinful lifestyle. We cannot drink from the cup of self-deception and the well of living water at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. We must deal with our sins through genuine repentance. So rather than running from Jesus in shame and disgrace and getting offended, Preacher's preaching to me. He knows about my past. Everybody there's judging me. I ain't going back to that church. They know too much about me. She could have easily took off running. I mean, Jesus literally just told her her entire past, laid it out there. But you know what? Rather than running in shame and disgrace, 
The Bible says the woman then left her water pot, water pot, went into the city, and she said, Come see a man which told me all the things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? She recognized that Jesus was more than a prophet. He was the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did right. He was the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy. She didn't care who knew about it. She didn't care that there might have been somebody in that town that didn't know what she had done. She was okay with letting them know, hey, I just met the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done wrong. You need to come meet him too. She went into the city to tell everyone about the one she had met at the well. And rather than being offended by Jesus, this woman rejoiced over his offer to living water. She couldn't wait to tell her friends and neighbors what she had discovered. And because of this, an entire community was changed. People came from all around in the middle of the day. They were on their job they had things to do. They dropped everything and come running out to meet Jesus. And it all started with a woman who had a very checkered past, lowest of the low, someone Jesus should have not even ever met. It all started with that woman, one woman who recognized who Jesus was, who wanted living water, was ready to and, and willing to address her past, and an entire community came out and was changed by the words of Jesus. Nothing is as powerful as experiencing Jesus firsthand and tasting of the well of living water. Many of the Samaritans, John 4, 39, of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. Anyone who has ever tasted the living water Jesus offers, you have a responsibility. Everyone in this room today, and most of those watching online tonight, have tasted of that living water. You have a responsibility. How would the story have turned out if this woman would have said, Thank you, Jesus, and walked off by herself, kept it a secret, didn't want anybody to know, didn't want to bring it up? Nope. She had a responsibility, and she knew it. She went flying back into town. Screaming the testimony and the goodness of God. Telling everybody about it. And we have a responsibility. We are about to approach Thanksgiving. Many of you will be around family members and friends who do not follow God. I do not recommend taking your Bible in there and setting a pulpit up in the living room. You laugh, but there are people I have pastored that have tried that. And to date... I've never seen them win a single soul with that approach. In fact, they're probably the most um, hated person in the family. <laughs> However, your personal testimony, in a, in a way that's not offensive, if you're, if you're wise and if you're sensitive, you'll know when the moment is right. Maybe you're sitting in the living room and it's just you and someone that's in your family or a friend or you're hanging out with them and you know it's just them. And they open the door in conversation about something they're going through. And in that moment, you can be that woman that goes back into the city saying, all I can tell you is I was brokenhearted and God mended me. All I can tell you is I was lost and God found me. Uh, all I know is that God did something for me I never thought was possible. And I can tell you if he did it for me, he can do it for you. 
You ain't got to read the New Testament. You ain't got to stand up and holler like Pastor Landrew. You ain't got to do none of that. You can tell your personal testimony. She didn't open up the Scripture. She didn't walk around preaching. She just went in there and said, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. That personal testimony. Stand with me. There's a joke that kind of goes around. I thought it's funny. It's so true. How do you know if someone has run a marathon? Don't worry, they'll tell you. You ever met a, a gym rat or someone who's a fitness enthusiast? They work out all the time or they run marathons. They just somehow manage to fit into every conversation. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to be able to meet you because I'm going to run a marathon. Oh, okay, whatever. Oh, I can't be there because I'm going to be working out of the gym again this week for the fifth time. I'm like, okay. The old joke alludes to the fact that most of us love to talk about our interests and accomplishments to anyone who will listen, whether we want to admit it or not. If you've noticed automobile window decals, bumper stickers bearing the numbers of 13.1 or 26.2, what is that? That's people who've run marathons. They want people to know they have. And so it's people that are passionate about their running, and they want the world to know it. But it's not just runners who like to show off. The rear window of an automobile may be a good place to brag about your family's honor student. My kid is terrific. My kid made the honor roll. Or I like the one that says, my kid beat up your honor roll student. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? That's something wrong with that. Or the dinosaur eating up all of the little kids. It's, but it's a good place to brag about things that you're proud of the national parks you visited, or other accomplishments that can be commemorated, commemorated with a decal. When something good or noteworthy happens in our life, we usually feel an overwhelming urge to share it with someone. You may also, uh, for someone who's newly engaged or just recently married, they'll, Brother Josh and Sister Alexis probably have said that a thousand times this week. Oh, yeah, we're just married. And so... We, we find that where people who have recently had accomplishments in their life, and they're, they're okay with telling people. Considering this, how interesting is it that Christians are so silent about their faith? How sad is it that people are so silent about their faith? It's almost as if we don't really consider the good news of the gospel to be good news at all. Some Christians treat their faith like an embarrassing family secret. We don't want nobody to know. Let's not talk about it. Let's not bring it up. And I mean, we laugh at this, but I have literally seen people, when people ask them, oh, what denomination are you? They're like, what? I'm like, what? But you got decals all over your car because you ran around the track somewhere? I'm like, what? It's incredible to me that the gospel, the good news, what God has done in your life, the incredible miracles, salvation, uh, forgiveness of sins, that should be what you're most proud of. It should be some secret that you're afraid somebody's going to ask you. Where do you go to church? I'm a Pentecostal. <laughs> like my friend the other day said, man, I wish I was. You should be proud. You should be the woman that goes back into the city saying, Look what God has done for me. I'm Pentecostal. I speak in tongues. I clap my hands at church. I jump up and down if I feel like it. I have living water. You should be excited about that. And so she was. 
you should be in. So I say as we approach our family holidays, you, being a Pentecostal, shouldn't be a secret that you're trying to keep from somebody. Approach your family willing and ready. If someone is there and you sense the moment, you sense the opportunity, you're insensitive. I recommend praying before you leave for your Thanksgiving holidays, mainly so your family don't break out in a fight. But, but another reason might be, God, make me sensitive. Help me to be sensitive. That if someone today, and I sense in a conversation, someone's hungry or thirsty, and they're standing around that well, God, help me in that moment. Not to preach to them, not to condescendingly judge them, but to share with them maybe something God has done in my life. How impactful could that be? I want to reach my world through the testimony of the goodness of God in my life. Don't you? Let's lift our hands and say, God, if you will help us, I want to share my testimony. Help me. Things you have done for me. God, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the infilling of the Holy Ghost. God, the remission of sins I, I experienced at baptism. All of the many blessings and healings and provision. The goodness that you have given me all my life. Help me to share that, God. Help me, Lord, to communicate to those in my life my community and my family, the goodness of God. And everybody say amen. God bless you. Go share some good news and have a great Thanksgiving holiday. We will see you Sunday morning. God bless you. Sunday morning service, no activities. Sunday night, you are dismissed in Jesus' name.